0: Welcome to the Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Hey, quick reminder that we do the Bulwark live stream every Thursday night. Uh, We're not going to be doing it right after President Biden's first speech uh, tomorrow night. We'll do it uh, after due consideration on Thursday night. And uh, if you have not yet signed up for Bulwark Plus, please consider doing it. Uh, We appreciate all of the people who've supported us. And of course, you'll have access to our our daily newsletters as well as our whole suite of uh, of, of podcasts, but also because, you know, somebody asked me yesterday, what what is the mission of the bulwark now that Trump is gone? And it's a really interesting question. And I think I've had kind of a, the boilerplate answer, well, because the fight continues and we're still fighting against illiberalism on the right and the left. But I have to tell you, over the last uh, week or so, I think it's beginning to dawn on people that um, we're, we're in this post-Trump era where the Republican Party, far from Getting over its craziness is actually going deeper into it. And I, I last night I was on um on one of the uh the, the cable shows, and I said, you know, I'm getting the feeling that the tr- you no know, Trump is still a is still a threat. There's no question about it. I'm not minimizing that in any way whatsoever. But Trump is not the only problem the Republicans have. In fact, what's happening is that the crazy is metastasizing; that it has taken on a life of its own. You take Donald Trump out of the picture, and you have a party that has become absolutely addicted to conspiracy theories, fake stories, uh, anti-democratic impulses, uh, illiberalism, and so even if Donald Trump were just to vaporize from the world, um, we have a we have a serious uh, we have a serious problem. And and I'm I'm guessing that our guest today does not disagree with me about this. Uh, Tom Nichols, welcome back to the podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks, Charlie. So I'm I'm not sure where to start. I I I I have struggled. I was telling you right before we started this. I, I've I've been struggling not to make this sort of the Tucker Carlson uh, you know podcast like the craziest thing he he said. Um, but but it's hard because um, it's like every day we're seeing a new iteration of the of the crazy right on on Fox News. Um, so can, can I just like take a deep breath here? So instead of going for the crazy with Tucker crossing, we, can we do Rick Santorum first? Is that okay? Is that okay with you? Rick Santorum who, who, by the way, I'm going to confess, I used to like Rick Santorum. I, I did. I actually did. I actually spoke at an event. I introduced him at a dinner uh, here in Milwaukee, uh, some years ago and we we sat next to one another and had a really interesting evening. Uh, this was before he ran for president. And, uh, what struck me was that he, he had no prepared speech. He just had some note cards and he got up and he gave one of the better, um, one of the better talks that I'd heard. And I was, I have to admit, I was, I I was kind of impressed with him and watching what's happened to him in the era of Trump has been, well, you know, added to the list of, of depressing things. And I know we're going to get blowback. Oh, Rex Antoin was always crazy. No, I'm not saying I just, I agreed with him all the time. I just say that this was a, this was a relatively intelligent, articulate guy who has now, like so many others, gone off the, the, uh, off the rails. So he's speaking at a, an event sponsored by the Young America's Foundation, YAF, which is now headed up by Governor Scott Walker, and he shared his deep thoughts about American history. Here's former Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum.
1: We came here and created a blank slate. We, we birthed a nation. From nothing. I mean, there's nothing here. I mean, yes, we have Native Americans, but, <clears throat> but candidly, that, that there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. Oh, It, oh. it was born of no. the people who came here pursuing religious liberty to practice their faith, to live as they ought to live, and have the freedom to do so. Religious liberty. Those are the two bulwarks of America. Faith and freedom. I mean, you hear it all the time, now: faith and freedom, faith and freedom. But it is what makes America unique in the world.
0: Oh, I appreciated the shout out to the bulwark there. But um, <laughs> the, the yes, we, we have Native Americans, but candidly, there isn't much Native American culture in American culture, he said, besides the part of American with culture. No, we, we with no lack them, of irony. <laughs> we wiped them out. I, I just suggested in my newsletter that he comes to Milwaukee which is named after the Algonquin word for, you know, Milwaukee or Waukesha, uh, which comes from the Potawatomi word for fox. The state of Wisconsin um, is originally uh, uh which again, well, or my <laughs> home,
2: my hometown of Chicopee, Massachusetts, both derived from Native American
0: words. So we birthed a nation from nothing. Yeah, I mean there there's so much ignorance packed into all of this because even the people who came here didn't come from nothing, right?
2: You know, <laughs> the problem and and you alluded to this just before you you ran the the sound of course is that people on the left will say, "How did you not know that he was always crazy and it was never better than this?" Um You know, part of what what I think that we in the former Republicans, I don't know what you want to call ourselves, the apostates or the the underground or the Mm. heretics, um, you know, it's hard to explain to people that somebody like Rick Santorum um, was perfectly capable of mimicking normal human behavior for a long time. And is it that they were always this bad or that they've changed? And I Think, you know, there there's always the argument that it doesn't matter that they are what they are now. But in terms of recovering some sort of national sanity, I think it does matter because I think this has really moved over into some kind of addictive, performative uh aspect that always needs a bigger hit. And I yeah. think, you know, it's the kind of thing that even Rick Santorum, you know, if he um and by the way, one thing I'll say to Uh, as I always say to people on the left, when they say, well, they're just stupid. No, a lot of Tucker Carlson is not stupid. No. Rick Santorum is not stupid. These are, you know, reasonably intelligent human beings who have some idea of, of what they're doing, but they're now, you know, like, like addicts needing in a, in a codependent relationship with other addicts where they need to just keep giving each other bigger and bigger hits of crazy Um, and, and, you know, for Santorum to say, well, you know, there was nothing here in Native American culture. It didn't contribute anything. Um, I mean, this is, you know, kind of a third graders understanding of the pilgrims eating turkeys, wearing buckles on their hats. Um, and he, you know, he, most people know better. He knows better. obviously, you know, it's a pushback and he's talking to a college, young college crowd, who are probably tired of hearing their professor say I want and indicate before I begin that I'm standing on stolen land here in New York City um, you know but that's that's no excuse for completely losing your mind and saying the kinds of things they're saying but I don't I think they are in this kind of synergistic hamster wheel
0: oh, I think you exactly right
2: that they can't get out of now
0: what and they can't get out of it, and that that's why it's taken on a life of its own after Donald Trump. Um, I actually am, was was struggling. I was actually on live television, so I shouldn't actually be engaging in actual thought at the time I'm talking. You know what I'm saying? I just you shouldn't know. You know, yeah. But I was I was sitting. You know, we were talking about the Arizona audit. You know, the craziness that's going on there and the the nutty things that are happening. And I thought, you know, it, it, this. It, it, and I, Again, I'm not trying to let Trump off the hook here, but it is a little bit like, and I came up with the analogy of the – the uh, remember the Disney movie, The the Sorcerer's Apprentice, where they keep making things and it suddenly it, it's out of control. You make all the brooms and everything and, and suddenly it just spins – everything spins out of control that you can't – that it is, it has taken on a life of its own. But I, I think what's – you know, Santorum, you know, part of it is this, this push to, you know, complete nativism, which is – which is ironic, I suppose – um, that, that, that the Indian culture has to be made invisible is this sort of part of the we are an Anglo-Saxon country, and you know, it's, it's so ang- so so the Indians become invisible, the slaves, the millions of slaves, they become invisible, the other immigrants, uh, you know, become invisible. All of this this stuff, um, whether or not that, and this is part of this this sort of the the uh, revisionist history of of the right, which thinks it is actually pushing back against revisionist history, if you, if you follow that comment. I think that's overthinking it, Okay, um, believe
2: it or not. I mean, I know, I, I think as a narrative, you've got it nailed, right? That's exactly how they're presenting it, that, you know, we're pushing back against the marginalization. You know, the country, um, you know, the, um, 1776 wasn't created by, you know, a bunch of artisans in a hut. You know, in the in the Southwest, it was by you know Anglo-Saxon English-speaking people, and so on. I I think, though, there's something happening beyond that, which is each one of these political entrepreneurs, like like um, Santorum or Carlson or others, is desperate to say, "Wait, you're looking away from me for a moment. Hold on, I'll say something crazier, and you can start paying attention to me again." Um, I think yeah, each other. You know, and I know we're going to move to some of the crazy stuff that's being pumped out of these right-wing websites now. But I really think it's don't take your eyeballs off me, and I can make you angrier. I can give you that warm, buzzy jolt of anger better than the next guy. And and you know, there, this market that the conservatives have created for themselves does not in any way reward thoughtfulness or nuance. Or, um, you know, prudence or reflection. And so it's just a matter of it's like it's like the equivalent of a kind of giant racist auction house. You know, do I hear Native Americans? Do I hear Native Americans once? Wait, wait, we have African-Americans. Hold on. Oh, is our bid on Natives? And they just keep going back and forth. Until
0: it's well, you know well, well at, you're you're at, right. I'm not, I mean you're you're right about that. I, I, I do think it is getting the getting that hit, which needs to be more extreme every time. But it, it all tends to go in the same direction. I mean, yes. it goes in the direction of this sort of nativist, bizarre white nationalism. You know, I, I still am blown away by the fact that you have uh, people like uh, I we have to mention you know Tucker Carlson, Ron Johnson, uh, others who are actually articulating something like the replacement theory, you know, that these immigrants are trying to replace us and there's no pushback. So, I mean, all of the, the gravitational pull now. So I I mentioned that uh, Santorum makes these remarks to this group, the young uh, America's foundation, which has a long history. I mean, it really, you know, traces back to, you know, the Reagan era and uh, they own the Reagan ranch. Apparently Nancy, uh, Karen Tumulty has a new book about Nancy Reagan. Which is it very interesting. And it talks about how Nancy Reagan really disliked Yaf and really regretted selling the Reagan ranch to these folks. And I'm guessing that she's rolling over right now, but that's that's sort of parenthetical. But So Scott Walker is running this organization. He's got this big campaign, you know, to save conservatism, you know, by, um, you know, it's a war for the soul of the nation. And, you know, part of this is this fight over American history. And I think it's interesting that, you know, you could draw on a lot of actual historians, a lot of, you know, conservative historians. Instead, he brought in, you know, Rick Santorum. But uh, it is interesting the direction that this organization is taking because it gives you an indication of where the right wing is going. Walker is putting his imprint on Young America's Foundation by bringing in new speakers. And you know who his latest speaker is none other, Ste- yep, Stephen Miller, yep. And he describes on his website he says a longtime ally and alumnus of the foundation. Miller is a great example of a freedom fighter. someone students course, can look up to. Him. Oh, for fuck's sake, man but I, but think of it you know
2: it's like okay we have we are running out of ways to be we the these you know guys on the right we are running out of ways to be transgressive who is the most gigantic douchebag we can get that will attract <laughs> attention um you know charlie your your point about yeah. the narrative earlier is a- absolutely right um that it all goes in one direction but one of the interesting things about that direction Is that people like Tucker and the white nationalist movement are now feeding each other cues? I mean, Tucker didn't come up with replacement theory on his own. Um, You know, this is just, that's not his uh, his jam. He's looking out there and saying, what crazy shit do you want me to say?
0: Okay, speaking of crazy shit, let's, because you made a reference to uh, some of these websites. So uh, the, American greatness. How do we describe American greatness? It's you know it, it. I we used to describe it as uber Trumpy, but it's really become. Um, it has again taken on a life of its own, uh, being out there on on the edge. You have people like Victor Davis Hanson who writes for it. There are a lot of prominent conservatives who write for it, despite the fact that it has become woolier and more illiberal. And it, it you know, is, dem- I, I exactly. think of it
2: as a. I think of it as a as a generally well written festival of crack pottery.
0: I think of it as I, I would take out the well written part, but um, so anyway, there is a piece today that we have to talk about because it, it sort of distills the conservative mindset right now, and, and I think it plays into exactly what you are talking about. It's it's a piece, and I am by the way, I am I am reading this directly. This is not, I will not, uh, I am not going to sum this up. <laughs> this is because people will think that I am I am just uh, that I am exaggerating. So here is the headline: I won't take the vaccine because it makes liberals mad. My newly formed and well-developed opinion on vaccines is this. If those bastards want me to get the jab, I'm not going to do it because it will annoy them. Personal liberty is not the reason I'm avoiding it. Okay? So that's not what he's doing is he basically, they say, my primary, here's the key sentence. My primary reason for refusing the vaccine is much simpler. I dislike the people who want me to take it. And it makes them mad when they hear about my refusal. That in turn makes me happy yeah oh, i'm i'm willing to die in other words to own the libs but he's not and you know this is the part
2: that i think we always this is the kind of uh, you know the 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 moment where we have to step back and say you could just see you know the kind of um you know 3 a.m college dorm editorial meeting where that was birthed right dude Write a piece about how you're not going to do it just to piss off the libs. Yeah. And, you know, even if, I mean, you know, this is a guy, I I don't know anything about him, don't care. Um, But, you know, I I, I am almost certain that most of the people reading and writing this stuff um, want their parents to be vaccinated or probably vaccinated themselves probably, you know, in their daily lives um, aren't doing any of this. But, again, like I said, you know, Sitting around after 14 beers at 3 in the morning, uh, high-fiving each other. What an awesome, you know, this will really get eyeballs. And, I mean, look, Charlie,
0: you and I are sitting
2: here talking about
0: it. Well, that and that's that is the problem. Although I I do think that it does, but it does distill kind of what the culture of the right is right now, as as, as you've been talking about. It's not about it's not about uh, you know ideology and principles. It's not. It's not. It's not programmatic. There's no legislative agenda here. It it is. It is that sort of kind of knee jerk approach, which leads us inevitably to to Tucker Carlson. Okay, so (laughs) I have to read this. So Politico's playbook came out this morning. And it starts off, the very first item in Politico's playbook is the question, is Tucker Carlson losing his mind? <laughs> OK, some of you will argue that he lost it long ago, but as careful students of his evening show, we've noticed that Carlson has gradually become more unhinged in recent weeks. He devoted enormous attention to apologias for the January 6th insurrection. He seemed notably pers- uh, perturbed the night that Derek Chauvin was found guilty. And under the banner of just asking question, he's given quarter to anti-vaxxers and COVID-19 conspiracies. You know, I'll, last week I, I wanted to play. We should we should have played the the Tucker laughs. You've heard the Tucker laughs, sort of out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I I call it the Arthur
2: Fleck laugh. He he's like he's like Joaquin Phoenix in uh, Joker. He just can't help himself. It's like a condition now or something.
0: Well, well, they're random, and and this was one of those moments where he's he's talking and like the first one. I think, was when he was talking to uh, a cop, a former cop who was defending the verdict, and he cut him off and he g- does that random laugh. Just,
1: I'm kind of more worried about the rest of the country, which, thanks to police inaction, in case you haven't noticed, is like boarded up. <laughs> so that's more my concern. Well, yeah, that, was not that was just kind of nowhere. Yeah. And, and, and then he's
0: talking about Ted Lewin replacement theory, and he does the same thing a couple of days later.
1: you're being replaced and there's nothing you can do about it so shut up
0: (laughs) yeah that's there's something
2: there's just something wrong there i mean that's
0: well it gets it gets uh, it gets gets worse okay so he has decided that he's not only sort of going anti-vax he is taking the and, and this really does you know play into your your thesis he's sitting around going, I'm going to take the most extreme anti-mask position imaginable. And you can sort of imagine in the frat house, they're going, well, what would the most extreme position be? Well, it would be this. It would be this. It would be this. And no,
1: Tucker says, I got it. And And here we had it on Fox News last night. The rest of us should be snorting at them first. They're the aggressors. It's our job to brush them back and restore the society we were born in. So the next time you see someone in a mask on the sidewalk or on the bike path, do not hesitate. Ask politely but firmly, would you please take off your mask? Science shows there is no reason for you to be wearing it. Your mask is making me uncomfortable. We should do that and we should keep doing it until wearing a mask outside is roughly as socially accepted as lighting a marble in an elevator. But wait, wait, for it's it. repulsive. Wait don't for do it. it around other people. Wait for it. That's the message we should send because it's true. As for forcing children to wear masks outside, that should be illegal. Your response when you see children wearing masks as they play should be no different from your response to seeing someone beat a kid in Walmart. Call the police immediately. Contact Child Protective Services. Keep calling until someone arrives. What you're looking at is abuse. It's child abuse, and you are morally obligated to attempt to prevent it. Oh my!
2: He's going to get somebody hurt. I mean, we're la- we're sitting here laughing about how this yes. this uh, poor, poor, poor bastard is losing his mind, yeah. but someone out there who will you know is going to do what Tucker tells him to do is someone's going to get hurt
0: well also yeah somebody is going to get hurt i mean you can imagine the karens you know somebody actually calling the cops because the cops have nothing better to do than this right the children's protective services have no more serious uh, issues than to deal with with some performative assholery of somebody who's called the cops because they see a child wearing a a mask i mean this is this is this is unhinged on steroids um uh, i think,
2: they, I think you know. you're right and i think you know it's a um, well, first, I, I just have to slip in the zinger that I, that um, my, my, one of my favorite comments about Tucker is from David Frum, yeah. who has been watching all of this and said, you know, I liked Weimar Tucker better, um, oh. you know, that, uh, you know the, that Tucker has kind of slid into this. And apparently, um, David tells a story in, in a podcast that it was, of all people, Christopher Hitchens, who, who told Tucker Carlson kind of sensed that this could happen and told Carlson to stay away from television. Um, But that, I think what you're seeing, Charlie, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, this was the editorial meeting where they were all tapping their pencils against their teeth and saying, you know, we have to find new limits. We have to plumb new frontiers of assholery and how are we going to do this? And, you know, some, some kid in the room says, I've got it let's, you know, call the police and call wearing masks child abuse. And I think part of the nervous laughter thing is that when people are like that, and this is, you know, I do not say this as an expert in psychology. I say this as a man having lived on this earth many years. When people have that kind of outburst of nervous laughter, it's because they know they're wrong. They know that this is horrible. That's embarrassment. That is... That is your soul screaming, um, you know, saying, I wish I hadn't just said what I said. And I think he he is now circling the drain, you know, of craziness and doesn't know how to, like I said, it's a hamster wheel. He doesn't know how to get out of it. And I think when he says these things, um, there's a part of him where his brain fires off a neuron that says, you know, you used to be considered an intelligent young man. This is crazy. And um, and that then suddenly you get that Arthur Fleck Joker laugh come out
0: because somewhere deep down he knows he knows how bad this is. He say he's circling the drain of crazy, but this is working for him, isn't it? I mean, he knows he is. Did. Fox News, the Murdochs are back Are, are you know, they they have they have his back. Um, his ratings are are str- are strong. All of the Fox incentives start- are
2: old people with deep pockets and they're going to keep on the other hand, as someone pointed out. About his sponsors, um, uh, I think it was, I I don't want to misattribute it, but it was one of the many comedy writers who uh, hang on Twitter said, hey, I was watching a My uh, Pillow documentary in between, um, you know, commercials for Tucker Carlson. I mean, you know, at this point, it's, it's, you know, Tucker Carlson and sponsored. Then go back to the old 50s TV shows and now My Pillow brings you Tucker Carlson. um, But. You know, it's filling people's pockets for now, and I don't see. You know, he again. It's not a long-term strategy. This is not sustainable. You can't maintain this level of hyperbolic crazy. Um, but I think that you know, they this is riding the tiger and not knowing how to get off with a demographic that watches you that says. Bigger jolt, bigger jolt. I need a
0: bigger hit. Um, See, I mean, what Tucker is is doing is just taking the same position of the American greatness writer. You know, I'm not going to take the vaccine because it will piss uh, liberals off. And so Tucker is 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 escalating and saying, "Well, what would really piss liberals off? How do we really own the libs? Will we call the cops on them now?" The fact is you would think that you know maybe somebody in the back of their mind is going wait 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 I thought this was about freedom I thought this was about individual choice and now you're calling guys with guns uh, to force someone to do what what you want them to do but but again there there are no fixed principles here w- once it all becomes about owning the libs or 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 doing things specifically because it upsets and annoys someone else then you're just kind of a shapeshifter. Then you'll take any position at any time. And it's all about, you know, just uh, you and, know what liberal tours.
2: It's not just about owning the libs. It's about a minority of the country, that is to say, conservatives and Republicans who are amazingly in my lifetime, basically pushing themselves in the corner of being a minority saying, how do we make. The majority do things we want them to do. And, and, you know, how do we win elections by being a minority? How do we dominate the culture by being a minority? How do we um, have a voice that is outsized beyond our talent or our numbers as a minority? And this is partly what's going on this kind of rage um, against, you know, I mean, the, the, it's amazing that the people who are on the most watched cable network think of themselves as an oppressed, victimized minority. And in part, they have to maintain that because they are becoming a minority and they are trying to figure out how to constantly maintain that outsized um, cultural impact. But for no, you know, it used to be that the conservatives would say, we're doing that because we we are a dedicated minority of people who oppose abortion or because we're Second Amendment advocates or whatever it is. These people have become a kind of hard cadre of um, authoritarians. They couldn't care less about freedom.
0: They're about do what I say even if I am completely outvoted but this this whole you know playing of the victim card is fascinating to me because somebody wrote a book about victimization back in the ni- in the early night in the mists of time back in nineteen ninety two never thought that yeah in the before in the before before times um never thought that the, the right would do it, but it's interesting and this kind of goes back to the santorum thing the amount of effort right now being invested in convincing conservatives that racism is just not a thing that it is you know that there is no problem it's not just systemic racism it's that that you know that this is not this is a problem that we have solved look i understand i actually understand you know that conservatives have felt that they've been unfairly accused of this so often it's been the crying wolf thing that they they became numb to it but right now there is this push that anyone who raises the questions of social justice of any kind whatsoever or suggests that you know m- maybe people on the right rethink their position are immediately denounced. So you have this pattern. It's kind of a two-step that they increasingly become numbed to actual racism. They say things that are deeply insensitive or fundamentally racist like replacement theory. And then when they are called out for it, they say, see, they are trying to cancel me. You know, I am the victim. Let's raise more money. So it's become this circular thing where the, the the race issue now feeds their need not only to be outrageous, but to consider themselves victims. And, and who is a better ally in this than the people
2: on the far left? Um, you know, there's another symbiotic relationship of, you know, the kind of the Every everything is about racism left, and the racism doesn't exist right. Exactly, and there's absolutely no room for any kind of considered thought or policy development here. Um, the other, the other problem I think that we're seeing, and I think what underlies a lot of this about the victimization and the kooky laugh, and you know, all of the strange uh, upping the bid on who's a bigger victim <clears throat> is. You know, Charlie, when we became conservatives back in the day, one of the things that always struck me about the conservative movement was its remarkable, maybe even overwhelming and unhealthy level of self-confidence. Yeah. And that is completely lost. The American conservative movement, insofar as there is such a thing anymore, has completely lost its self-confidence. You know, I I've had arguments with people who say to me, "How can you be voting for Biden? How did? How can you? I, you know, I know Trump is bad, but dot dot dot." And I'd say, "Look, I, I, I have confidence in some basic conservative ideas. I think human nature is immutable. I think that in the end, after all of the social fads and arguments and and you know are gone, that people basically are." Uh, decent, and will find a, a kind of settling out of the center and move. I hate to, I hate to sound like I'm, you know, uh, stealing Barack Obama's lines about arcs of history and all of that. But I think human being generally, human beings generally move toward the right thing, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm just not worried that the the police forces in America will be disbanded and replaced by drag queen therapists. I mean, I just don't, I don't, I have confidence that most Americans are compassionate, sensible, they can find solutions. Conservatives have lost that. It's like if we, if we are not at the, conservatives now take the attitude, if we are not at the most extreme bleeding edge of crazy, then, you know, my kids are going to be sent to transgender training camp um, taught by, you know, Native Americans uh on and a nice flow yeah.
0: And I I blame and I blame David French for all of that. Um oh. could, could, could I, just, oh. I just underline something that you said though. I and mean, people need to understand that uh, folks on, on the center left who listen to us, I, I think they may intellectually know this, but I don't think they fully understand the how many how intense the accusations of you are all racist, you've always been racist, are directed always. at guys like you right. and I. So every single time that I appear on MSNBC, um, there there's a little cottage industry of folks that will say you should never have him on because he's a complete racist. Everything he did was oh, was a racist. Um, one of your good friends on on, on, on Twitter writes basically like, oh, oh, it's so sad, Charlie Sykes, realizing that the conservatives are, are awful. He was one of the people that built all of this. And it makes it hard to say to conservatives, you know, we actually need to think about some of these issues in a different way. We need to confront this. We can have this balance between loving the American idea, But maybe we have underestimated the American reality when it comes to race, because over our shoulder, there's this huge chorus of leftists saying, I don't listen to him because you people are all racist. You're all bigots. You've always been bigots. Gerald Ford was 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 a racist. Every every Republican that you can possibly mention. So there's a reason why the right has been conditioned to roll its eyes and to push back against uh, against this sort of thing. And, and I find it I find it very, very difficult because I do think that like, you understand what I'm talking about.
2: Yes, I feel it in my bones, um, you know, that this. Uh, well, you know, you, you guys, none of you are none of you were really all that different from David Duke. Yeah, right. Well, OK, um, then I, you know, I, I I don't know where to go with that. Um, you know, I'm sorry that you feel that way. That's not true. Um, but I'm not, I think, you know, um, it makes it one thing I think for, again, for people listening who are part of that, um, center left group, you know, it makes it hard to build coalitions with people who say you're fundamentally evil and all of you are in an undifferentiated way. Right. You know, I, I always end up getting into these arguments. People think that I have an icon of Ronald Reagan in my house and I don't, um, But, you know, trying to explain to people that you cannot explain Ronald Reagan without understanding the 70s and the late 60s absolutely gets nowhere. You try and place this in some sort of continuity uh, to say, you know, how did we get to the point of 1980 or 1985? And, you know, it it just becomes this, this urban legend of, well, it was all stolen and racist and dog whistles and, you know, uh, and, and it becomes an impossible conversation because the idea that any political movement was uniformly formed of one group of people um, is crazy. I mean, you know, part of the problem that you and I have is you were a Wisconsin Republican. I was a Massachusetts Republican, um, you know, so we were already different from our South and Mountain colleagues in the party. Um, but it, it, it's not a conversation. I mean, I, I've just stopped having those conversations with people on the left um, because it's it's simply a, uh, some of it's a very Twitter-driven thing. Some of it is very much kind of a college campus mentality. Um, but I, I just don't think there's much that, that you can do about it um, because – Americans have the historical awareness of tree squirrels.
0: Okay, so let me switch gears a little bit because, I, and I, I and then tell me whether you think I'm right about this. Uh, with all of these focus on, you know, on the focus of the culture wars and all of this, and the and the and the gotcha politics, you know, it, it it does appear that conservatives are very. Um, Dramatically losing the war on fiscal issues to the extent that they're even fighting that war. This new Monmouth poll I thought was very, very intriguing. I mean, you know, we are so bitterly divided. Everything's partisan, everything's tribal, right? Except that this new Monmouth poll, you know, seems to suggest some pretty broad bipartisan support for these massive spending plans that would have been. I think, you know, hair on fire radioactive, you know, at, at one time. So they found about two and three Americans support the president's multi-trillion dollar infrastructure package, as well as the proposed tax hikes to pay for it. So uh, the $2 trillion infrastructure proposal is favored by 68% of Americans, only 29% oppose it. of Republicans favor a $2 trillion infrastructure proposal. Then you get this this social spending bill, which we haven't really gotten a total picture of. This was expanding access to healthcare, childcare, providing paid leave, college tuition support. 64% of Americans say, hey, yeah, we like that. 34% are opposed. Um, 64% of Americans support raising taxes on corporations. 65% 65% favor um, raising taxes on individuals earning more than 400000 So maybe these things had always been possible, but it does feel like after four years of Trumpian deficits and Republicans sort of giving up on fiscal issues, that the center of political gravity has really shifted to the left on these issues, at least for now.
2: Yeah, I think two things are happening. One is um, the Republicans- were never particularly good about fiscal discipline but they were good at making arguments for yeah. it they had they now they don't even bother doing that now they just don't care there is no ideological content to being a republican now other than trump and white grievance there's no economic aspect to it there's no foreign policy aspect to it i mean if you had to try to explain what does it mean to i can explain what it means to be a conservative i cannot explain what it means to be a republican because there is no content in that party anymore. Um, And so, you know, by default, I think things are going to shift to the left. But I think the other thing that's happening is that income inequality, not a subject that I ever usually talk about, but I think in this context, it's really important to bring up. I think what you're seeing is kind of like the way in ancient Greece that they built the Parthenon People, uh, you know, a little bit of historical insight. People, the, the Athens builds the Parthenon because there's so much money in the treasury um, and it's so concentrated that they actually say, let's have a giant public works project to put everybody, you know, the masons and the carpenters and the, and the you know, um, statue builders and all that stuff. So, so it becomes this like giant public works project to kind of flood money back into the economy. And I think in an era – where income inequality has become so huge, there's almost a kind of logic to saying, "Look, let's do some huge infrastructure projects, redistribute some money out, employ people, and take it out of the people whose wealth has outpaced everybody else." And you know, if that's got sixty-eight percent of the country, I might be one of them. Um, and you know, I'm as weird as that feels as a Republican. I mean, you you know this current situation of low taxation, gigantic income inequality, and clump, crumbling infrastructure, I mean, look, it does have a pretty obvious solution staring you in the face. And that's, let me, for Republicans who, who's, you know, those few Republicans whose heads are exploding hearing that, if if Republicans were actually a governing party with an alternative idea, particularly at the state level Which, where the state-level GOPs have become even, in some ways, crazier than the National Party, then maybe we could have a discussion about how to do this in a more rational way. But because Republicans have completely abandoned the field and are obsessed with Arizona recounts and calling the cops on masked children, um, that space has been opened for Joe Biden and a big centrist Coalition to say, you know, maybe we need a big infrastructure bill.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, there's there's not a centrist coalition in Congress right now. I guess I'm I'm still reluctant to go along with all of the spending, but I will say this, and look, I'm the guy that wrote a book called A Nation of Moochers, uh, which was, you know, about uh, <laughs> income transfer and people who were dependent on government. That, uh, that really one of the operating assumptions of that book was that government dependence or dependency on government was a was a bad thing. But also at the heart of my thesis back then was the belief in the incredible powers of social mobility that that simply because you were low income or poor doesn't mean that you can't rapidly rise the 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 extreme Inequalities of income and wealth that we're seeing right now, I think, really challenge that. I think it challenges that belief in social mobility because there's something profoundly dangerous and 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 frankly, I think morally wrong about a society in which um, in in which there are these these vast differences and and I think that's unsustainable. I mean, just from a pragmatic right. point of view, if you don't want to talk in moral terms, pragmatically, it is it is unsustainable. So that that um dependency on government maybe rethink all of that to say look how, how can we have a society in which we have um all you know uh more more widely shared prosperity now a- again the, the the rights investment has always been we have trickle down economics which is no joke i mean that's what they would say you know the margaret thatchers of the world you know Said we shouldn't, you know, be concerned about income inequality. All we should be concerned about is that, you know, if people, if everybody's uh, standard of living is rising, then then who cares if other people are rich? Well, that model doesn't seem to be working. That and 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 there were there's a lot of ideology that was based on that belief in the American dream being social mobility and that everybody has access and i'm not sure that's the case anymore and i think that, that that strengthens the case for more spending this much spending i'm not persuaded yet
2: this is another place where it's frustrating to argue with people on the left because they say trickle down didn't work and and i always say we don't call it trickle down anymore we call it how the economy works because we are basically an investment society as you know you can say that we've abandoned trickle down but when barack obama and other liberal democrats point to the new york stock exchange as a sign of economic health that is the very definition of trickle down hmm. that you know democrats 40 years ago would never pointed the stock market and said well you know we really have to goose the market and make sure it breaks 6000 um, but what republicans i think and and with plenty of bipartisan help from wealthy Democrats did was create a situation where there are people getting rich who basically are the equivalent of just, you know, running a butter churn and scraping the cream off the top over and over and over again. And that, as you say, is unsustainable. But again, let me throw this back onto the the Trump Republicans who have completely failed as conservatives. Ronald Reagan, Robert Reich once had that great line, I'm sure you know it, Charlie, of what Reagan did was to shift the burden of proof back onto government. Mm-hmm. Right. Up until the 19, up until the 1980s, it's we're gonna tax you and you show us why we shouldn't. And after the 80s, it was you're gonna earn money and we have to show you why we're going to tax you. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing with Biden, because the Republicans as a party have completely collapsed as any kind of intellectual or, or policy-oriented force. Is that Biden has said government now has the presumption of, of rightness and government is capable of doing big things that are good. And that is, you know, if, if I, I think we would never have thought of Biden as a kind of revolutionary presence no, he is. In, in politics. But if Joe Biden in four years succeeds in saying, look, the government has the the benefit of the doubt to to take money and do big things. That is going to be a revolution. That's really the end of the Reagan revolution. And, you know, I I think it's a necessary corrective. I think Reagan was needed in, again, I will always say, cannot understand Reagan without understanding the 70s. Um, But if Biden does that and conservatives are mad about it, there's one person in particular you can blame, and he's sitting down in Florida you know ra- raging about stolen elections
0: well i don't disagree with that but i i i still want the burden of proof to be on government to show that uh, the justification for raising the the taxes i, I i'm still not willing to shift that uh, that presumption quite neither, that much. Neither am I,
2: but it's going i think it's happening
0: gonna, well i think it is happening you know i i think i think it is happening um but, you know, just politically, I, I think it's very interesting looking at some of these poll numbers, and looking at the politics with particularly with these new populist attacks on woke corporations. That I don't think that's going anywhere. There's no legislative agenda on the part of, you know, Republicans that will actually go after corporations. But it's created a moment for the Democrats if they want to raise taxes on corporations because Republicans are no longer defending corporations. Um, they're they're no longer Democrats, I mean friend of corporate America. Yep. Yeah, five minutes five <laughs> minutes ago, American corporations were the engine of American, you know, freedom and prosperity. And now it's like they're not, they're not even bothering to make the case so this is that moment where as you as you point out you know if if the democrats come in with a massive corporate tax increase or raising the uh, the, uh, the the capital gains tax they may have a moment where people are going yeah we're we're okay with that okay one last thing before we, we we move on here so i know that you're in the burn burn all of the republican party down but i have to say and i i'm i'm i am sympathetic i'm more sympathetic all the time however this story about Liz Cheney is really extraordinary. This woman is not budging. And the contrast between other, her and other Republicans is amazing. So Politico has a piece last night, the McCarthy-Cheney divide deepens at GOP retreat. And it quotes her. Um, you know, she had an interview with Politico saying, if we minimize what happened on January 6th and if we appease it, Then we will be in a situation where every election cycle you could potentially have another constitutional crisis. If you get into a situation where we do not guarantee a peaceful transfer of power, we won't have learned the lessons of January 6th, and you can't bury your head in the sand. It matters hugely to the survival of the country. That is so diametrically opposed to what Kevin McCarthy and the vast majority of other Republicans are saying. And this woman, who, you know, I think is is even odds to lose her seat in the primary is not budging. I mean, you know, p- political courage, you know, we talk a lot about it, but it is vanishingly rare. And I have to say I'm very impressed with this woman.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think you can hold both of those thoughts at the same time, that the that the Republican Party needs to, you know, needs to just um to I don't want to say die, but the Republican yeah. Party needs to collapse. And finally, just, you know, the the facade that's being held up by a couple of two by fours in this political Potemkin village finally needs to just fall over. You can believe that, and also believe that what Liz Cheney is doing is remarkable. Um, And again, to our friends on the left, I would say, Spare me all of your self-righteous, you know, bloviation about Liz Cheney is evil and she supports evil. Right now, what Liz Cheney is doing is standing up for the Constitution. You can disagree with her on every policy she's ever had. You can hate her dad. You can dislike all of the laws she ever voted for or against. Um, But at this moment, she is defending the constitutional system of the United States government. And that is all I ask. Of any elect, which shows you how sadly minimalist we've all become about this. That's all I ask of any elected official. The question, Charlie, is does it do Liz Cheney any good to remain in the Republican Party, to be this lone voice, and to be providing some level of top cover for lunatics? Um, you know, because party discipline and party comedy requires. That she not go completely to war against, you know, uh, Green and Bobert and Gomert and, you know, all the other, uh, you know, members of the Kooky Rube faction, um, you know, so is there any point in, in- – you know it, the Republican Party is not going to be saved by Liz Cheney. Let's put it no,
0: that way. No, it's it's not. But on the other hand, you know, you and I consider we can ha- we can talk about how the Republican Party needs to uh, needs to fail, needs to die, needs to you know be burned down. But it's not going to happen. And the Republican Party is not going away anytime soon, and they are about two inches away from getting back into power. And so that's that's the the, the thing that I keep coming back to is that we can say how thoroughly corrupt it is. And write it off. And I'm certainly tempted to do that. But, you know, we just had the census numbers yesterday showing that more congressional seats, more electoral votes are going to be transferred into Republican areas. Kevin McCarthy thinks he can get away with all of this bullshit because uh, the Republicans because will, will retake retake the House. So this is a party that we're going to have to deal with. So there is a huge reason why we want to find some voices in that party that will decrazify it. But you're right. She's not going to do it. I, I mean, the, the, the number of sane Republicans is absurdly small right now. But that's a, that's a, real, that's a real danger, too. Let me
2: offer a counterpoint. And, okay. you know, you old, old school political professional that you are as well. Right. You, you know, well, as a long time, especially, you know, state and local levels, yeah. you know, the question is, great, she said all these things. Who is she going to caucus with? And so, you know, we can hear we can put out all these stories about the big rift and the, you know, Cheney McCarthy fights and the internal this and the leaked that. But in the end, if the Republicans come into power and Liz Cheney votes for Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker, then what what did it all matter? Yeah. You know, at some point, the only thing that matters is to pull a Jim Jeffords, You know, uh, there's a name from history for everybody, you know, and to say, look, I'm not going to caucus with this party anymore. I'm going, I'm not going, you know, I consider myself a conservative, a Republican, a Wyoming stalwart, whatever I am, but I am not going to cast a vote for this seditious coward as the Speaker of the House third in line to the presidency. I'm just not going to do it.
0: No, I mean, maybe the best case scenario at this point is to have kind of a centrist caucus that that uh, doesn't caucus with the Democrats, doesn't caucus with the Republicans, and maybe there's ten, eleven, twelve of them, and they hold the balance of power, and they say, okay, we're we may differ on political things, but we're just not going to go for the crazy, and if you embrace the crazy, we're not going to support you. So who who? You know?
2: And that our centrist caucus, that that balance of ten or eleven votes. You know, as pay, and it will, it, yes. You know, it could cost Cheney her seat and maybe others. But to say one of our overriding principles is we are not going to hand committee chairman. We're not going to hand the speakership to McCarthy, and we're certainly not going to put people like Devin Nunes back in charge of yeah. you know committees like the Intelligence Committee. I mean, this this was an argument I made three years ago of say when people said, "Well, you know," but judges and appointments, and I said, "You know." If you're voting to make sure that Devin Nunes is in charge of the intelligence committee, then you are just not, this is not a serious conversation. I'm sorry. At some point, these things have consequences. So could there be a caucus that says, you know, our overriding goal is to make sure that until the Republicans are no longer clinically insane, that they cannot occupy positions of leadership? Maybe, but I suspect that that will mean that the primaries um, you know, will wipe out some of those Republicans, and then it, the fight. And I keep saying this to Democrats: the fight shifts to the state and local elections that Democrats are so bad about showing up for.
0: They are, and they need to, and that that polit- that political dynamic needs to change. Well, as just as an indication of how everything continues to get worse, I, I do urge people, and I urge people in my newsletter this morning: pay attention. To what's happening in arizona right now where they're having this incredibly bizarre weird uh audit of the votes from maricopa county Th- this is a this is a state there that uh, joe biden won legitimately they've had three recounts in maricopa county there are no problems there's no uh, voter fraud and yet the republicans uh in the senate have used their subpoena power to seize all of the ballots in, in maricopa county and turned it over to this conspiracy theory nut job who has openly questioned the election, and they're counting—they're going to count these votes really behind closed doors. They're not allowing the media, and the only people who are allowed in are like, oh, you know, uh, OAN, um, you know, and, and other and other folks like that who are already broadcasting, you know, dark uh, intimations of systematic fraud. So. No, t- two things. This is this thing may be a joke to to most of us, but it's going to keep the big lie alive, as well as all of these sundry conspiracy theories. So, uh, for for the and, and Trump himself is deeply invested in this fake stuff. So a lot of this, they're not going to be happy until there's more violence, or uh, un- until they manage to um, overturn the 2024 election. I think this is happening in broad daylight. It's happening in real time. And we may find out that what we've been through over the last few months has just been a rehearsal, which is scary. And I intended to be scary.
2: I think that's true. And I think there is a way around it, which is, again, for Democrats and others, um, you know, disaffected Republicans, independents, people of goodwill to show up in gigantic numbers. There is, you know, that is the only way to do it. And. This is, this is why I know I make a lot of people mad on social media. Stop complaining about suppression. Stop, stop complaining about gerrymandering. Stop complaining about how the House should be bigger and the Electoral College should be abolished. And we ought to have 15 new states. You're going to have to win 2024 under really adverse circumstances. So just gird up and do it and show up in large numbers that are too large to fake the the arizona recall I, I mean i really do think there are people that are hoping that this spurs violence i mean i think that there is a really dark core of people on the right who have decided that without violence um you know none of this you know this is all a lost cause but i do th- normally my attitude is shine a lot of sunshine and mockery on this stuff i think in the arizona case this really is a case for you know treating this as uh, not so much as a joke, but simply shrugging and saying, you know, I'm sorry, but three recounts later, um, you know, you're still litigating something that happened a year ago. Whatever, um, because I think the only way it gets traction is for it's for the mainstream media and people on the left to get their hair on fire because you know how this is going to come out. You know that the Arizona Republicans are going to say, "Aha, <clears throat> you know, this firm." That we paid has found evidence that perhaps and and you know Tucker is going to run with it and you know Mark Levin and all the usual kooks are going to run with it, um, but I think on this one this is where a certain amount of adult stoicism is the is the greatest antidote to it. But I think your point about this being a dry run for 2024, everybody better buckle up, suit up for this, and realize that. Uh, the, that the pasting that the Republicans took in 2020, they are not going to stand for that again. They are going to, they, that they learned their lesson in 2020 and they are laying the groundwork.
0: Okay. So if it's a binary choice between stoicism and shrugging and lighting your hair on fire, I I guess I'm, I'm, I'm in camp lighting your hair on fire about this stuff.
2: Yeah, I think, I think it depends on what it is. I mean, I, you know, I think, um, I, I, you know, the people that are trying to get Rick Santorum fired at CNN. I actually think I, you know, me, I hate calls because I've been the victim of, yeah, um, I shouldn't say the victim, the target of many calls to fire somebody. But when you know, when you're a national TV commentator and you basically have become an overt racist, then you know, yeah, it is, it is time to to raise hell about that and to go after sponsors and, uh, you know, to 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 ask. If this is in the public interest. But I think on something like the Arizona, this one discrete thing the the, I think the people doing it are hoping it gets a lot of attention that then is like a match thrown at a pile of Tinder. I think what the Democrats ought to be doing in terms of hair on fire is getting fleets of lawyers together to go state by state. To being ready for the groundwork, just as they did in 2020. And let me just give a shout out here to the lawyers because people on the left always think that going to the streets and demonstrating is what saves
0: things. 2020 was saved by lawyers. Yep. It was, it was saved by lawyers and a handful of uh, election officials who, who did the right thing. Absolutely. And you, and, you, and you have to hope that you still have some of those still in, in, in office when it comes to 2024. Tom Nichols, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me, Charlie. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.